Welcome to The Good Night Show. I'm Shay Morrison, sleep expert and co-founder of The Good Night Co. Join me each week for hints and tips on all things sleep. Hello and welcome back to The Good Night Show. On today's episode, I sit down with Bruno Van Swinden, who is an associate professor at the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland. Quite the mouthful. A lot happens to the brain when we're asleep at night and in our most vulnerable state but it's where the magic really happens. Bruno and I break down each stage of sleep and get an understanding of what each stage means for our brain health and cognitive function. If you're also wanting to know about the microbiome and sleep connection, then I'd suggest listening to this one. Bruno, welcome. It's so great to have you here on this podcast. One of the first questions I love to ask um, all of our guests is, how did you sleep last night? Yeah, excellent first question. So uh, I would say I, I fell asleep fast, um, but then I woke up unreasonably early and I had trouble going back to sleep. And this is probably around, you know, 4 a.m. It's probably a, a Brisbane summertime thing, but, um, you know, I wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> I think it's definitely a Brisbane summertime thing. <laughs> I feel your pain. Do yeah. you generally Do you generally sleep well? I do now, but I, I must say I did go through a period of, uh, of insomnia, maybe about five years ago. And, uh, and it was devastating, you know, it just ruined my life. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's just how important sleep is for, for everyone. It really pretty much defines whether you're going to have a good day or a bad day the next day, depending on how, how well you slept. When you slept well, you're optimistic about the world. You're happy. Everybody is uh, a friend. When you sleep badly, it's, uh, it's not a positive outlook. And fortunately, I got past that and it was really, you know, a difficult time. But uh, um, and I must say that it's not um, the typical sleep drugs that got me past that. It was really a behavioral thing. What did that look like for you then? Uh, you know, good exercise, um, good sleep habits, you know, um, less uh, screen time before going to bed. Uh, just really kind of like making sure that you've got a, a good routine, which where you're almost conditioning yourself uh, before going to bed that telling your brain that now it's bedtime and it's time to, to wind down. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. And for, for our listeners who are not familiar, I'd love you to explain, just introduce yourself, um, what your role is, and also um, the Queensland Brain Institute, which is where, where you work. Yeah, sure. Queensland Brain Institute is about, you know, uh, 40 labs working on understanding the brain. Um, not only from a perspective of, uh, of neural disease, which is part of the story here, but also just basic academic research on how the brain works, uh, how to maintain a healthy brain. And we use everything from uh, human research, uh, human EEG studies, to, um, to looking at lowly fruit flies, like in my lab. And uh, the, the common uh, revelation is that all brains are pretty much alike. It doesn't matter <laughs> if you're a fly or a human, uh, they work the same way, they need sleep the same way, they pay attention to the world in a very much the same way. And that's why we can use simple animals like flies uh, to be able to understand basic brain function. And that's what my lab does, it uses simple animal models by uh, using genetics and you know powerful genetic tools to be able to deconstruct the brain, um, test it in different ways to try to really understand 
fundamental processes like like attention and sleep and also general anesthesia. Well, I was lucky enough to um, to come in and see uh, your lab. I, it was early last year, or end of 2019, and we saw the fruit flies in action. And it is fascinating watching how you, um, you know, track these little tiny creatures to actually measure what's going on in their brain. Yeah, I mean, their tininess is uh, maybe a disadvantage. Yeah, we could have ended up with a larger animal to study, but... Uh... <laughs> But it has its advantages. They're easy to breed. Um, they're cheap. Yeah. You know, they, it's, yeah. it's a good animal model. Yeah. And you keep them in special conditions. I remember we, ha- you know, we had to walk through lots of different rooms and doors. And, um, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to watch. Yeah. Apart from the animal being small, are there any other challenges that you find or anything really interesting? Well, I mean, a fruit fly has only about 100,000 neurons. And these are the cells that regulate brain activity. Uh, so it's really kind of a, a manageable number. So if we really wanted to completely understand how a brain works and how sleep, for example, uh, helps maintain brain health, you can feel that in an animal that has 100,000 neurons, it's, it's maybe more realistic to figure that out than in our brain, which has 100 billion neurons. Right? Right. And if you think about how a brain actually works, it works through the connections between the neurons, right? So every neuron actually talks to about a a thousand other neurons and then if you just do the simple math that's a trillion connections yeah a trillion synapses as they're called chemical synapses in the human brain and if you just think about that for a moment if every connection has to be optimized and maintained within a certain optimal level of function to do that in a trillion places is a is a very complicated machine yeah Um, so it's complicated in the fly but it's, it's super complicated in a human and amazingly, that's what sleep does. Sleep tries to maintain what's called homeostasis, which is another word for balance, uh, to try to keep a balance amongst that, that very complicated machine and make sure that it's always optimal and working within an optimal range and not flying off the handle. And I, I was listening to a really interesting podcast recently. Um, it was Dr. Jay Chatterjee, and he interviewed a guest called Dr. Lisa Moscone, um, and it was all around it was the truth about the female brain. And um, she was talking about lots of these things that you're mentioning, but also about the importance of water for that connection around the, what you're talking about with the connection and the neurons. So, so can you explain a bit about, you know, obviously the brain is made up of, is it 80 or 90% of water? Yeah, there's a lot of water in there. There's also a lot of fat. Interestingly, yeah. your, your brain is largely composed of lipids yeah. but between um Two neurons, there's something called a synapse, which is a, a basically a, an empty space filled with yeah. water. And uh, between that empty space, uh, one neuron talking to another neuron has to send something called neurotransmitters, which are dopamine or serotonin or acetylcholine or glutamate. You may have heard these, uh, these terms. And these are just little chemical messages that allow one neuron to talk to another one. And they actually have to fly through this space of water between two, two neurons to actually communicate one message to the next. So that's all existing within this kind of watery environment. It's, um, it's almost like this uh, electrical circuit sitting in a bath. And so therefore, you know, you're mentioning water and fat. She, she had sort of talked about the fact that that's why it is really important for us to stay hydrated and also to be consuming, you know, essential fatty acids to really help, help with all of that. Is that is that something that an opinion that you share? Yeah, absolutely. So um, neurons are made of, of fats, you know, and uh, 
And a lot of the, you know, the foods that are considered to be uh, healthy foods for the brain, such as uh, various, uh, you know, good cholesterols and, you know, fish oils and things like that. Um, yeah, they, they help build basically that, that infrastructure, the brain infrastructure. And, uh, and clearly, you know, water is important, obviously, to stay hydrated. It's, uh, it's critical to maintaining brain health as well. What would you recommend to people? Is it the, you know, the average of what they say, eight to 10 glasses a day, or does it look a bit more than that? Or what, what, what are your thoughts there? Something remarkable about the, the whole concept of homeostasis, basically, of balance, is that to a large extent, your body or your brain knows how much it needs, right? So if you're thirsty, you'll drink. Yeah. And that applies to sleep as well, right? So people yeah. get very anxious about, about how much sleep they need. And you'll get the sleep you need, right? It's something that your brain figures out pretty much on its own, how much sleep it needs. And it's similar to other homeostatic processes like thirst and hunger as well. But like you, you know, what you were saying before on that, to that point, you know, you struggled, you were saying, you know, five years ago or so, you struggled with a bit of insomnia. What do you suggest for people who are then, you know, so you're saying that your body knows, your brain knows what, what it needs, but if you are going through a, you know, a, a really stressful time or something changes, then what, you know, how, how do you help your brain to, to signal to your body that this is what it needs if it can't get over that, that sort of barrier? Yeah, it, it does seem in a way a very challenging question because if we, if we know, if the body knows how much it needs, why is it so hard to get at that? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and to a large extent, you know, we have maybe too much information. Um, there's a lot of anxiety out there yeah. and anxiety provoking behavior that's connected to sleep where people are feeling like that they're not getting the sleep they need yeah. or that they're not falling asleep fast enough. Yeah. And that, that makes people anxious. And then that anxiety itself um, leads to more, you know, poor sleep, for example. So it's really about ways, finding ways of being comfortable with ourselves and winding down and trying not to be anxious. Uh, yeah. And it's of course a hard thing to do to uh, tell somebody not to be anxious. It's like asking somebody <laughs> yeah. not to, not to think of a, of a pink elephant. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, I think one, um, piece of advice that I have that actually worked for me is, is just if you know that, and this is, let me first introduce some aspect of sleep stages, right? So we sleep in, in stages that are separated by 90 minute cycles, right? So typically we will um, uh, go into deep sleep at the beginning of the night uh, rather quickly, but then 90 minutes later, we'll go into a stage of REM sleep, which is when we have a lot of vivid dreaming. And these cycles are separated by 90 minutes. And, and we have a couple of these cycles throughout the night and by the morning, we're mostly dreaming. But what's interesting and what many people don't know is that these cycles also exist while we're awake. Ah, right? No, so, I didn't know and, that. Yeah, these are called uh, ultradian rhythms, right? So during wakefulness, we also see 90-minute cycles. Typically, they don't have to be necessarily 90 minutes exactly. But our, our levels of arousal of wakefulness or you know, responsiveness in a way uh, during the day also cycles uh, throughout the day. And typically, when we go to sleep, we should be going to sleep at the trough of one of those cycles, right? Because they actually continue into our sleep cycle, right? So these, this kind of rhythm that started during the day actually goes on into the night during our sleep continuously, right? So people who try to fall asleep and can't, it could very well be that they're actually at the peak of one of these cycles. They're at the wrong stage. Cycle. Yeah. Exactly. And rather than trying to force yourself to fall asleep at that point. Uh, the best thing to do is actually to get up, walk around and try again in 45 minutes. 
Right. Okay. Because at that point, you'll probably be then at the trough of one of these cycles, which is the best time to actually go to bed. Kind of need to find when those times are and stick to it um, and get that kind of behavioral conditioning for your day after day, rather than having random bedtimes and, you know, very variable from one day to the next. And that's why the advice is out there to to stick to a schedule. So to find that time to go to sleep and to wake up and to, to really stick to that uh, awake. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're completely linked to your wakeful rhythms as well. It's not as if something magically turns on or off when you go to bed, when you go to sleep. It's all a continuation from what was already there during wakefulness. And so can you break down, would you be able to break down for us what is happening? You mentioned before, um, you know, th- that we early in the morning is often our dreaming state, but during the, the non-REM and the REM and, the, you know, during our different stages, um, what, what is actually happening in these stages? Sure. I mean, this is fairly well known now in terms of uh, the, you know, what's called the neural correlates. Um, the functions, that's something else. We can talk about that a bit later. That's a bit more mysterious. But we do know that when you go to sleep, you know, you rather quickly go into, into deep sleep, what's called. And that's usually uh, slow wave sleep, which means that if we were to record your brain activity with an EEG, um, electrical activity from the brain, we would see these classical uh, oscillations from the brain which are basically these, um, these one hertz or once per second waves of activity happening uh, across your cortex, across your brain. And this is basically um, uh, 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 slow wave sleep. Um, and that lasts for about you know, 30 minutes or so. Um, and the, these slow waves are typically very large at the beginning of the night. And that's sort of symptomatic of what's called sleep pressure. The more sleep pressure that you have, the, the more tired you feel the larger the slow waves are going to be as soon as you go to sleep. And that's already a clue that they're accomplishing some kind of function. And then 90 minutes after having fallen asleep, you'll go into your first REM sleep stage. And there, oddly enough, and this was very surprising when it was first discovered, uh, the brain essentially looks awake. So the brain activity doesn't look that different from a, from a waking brain, except you're completely, completely disconnected from the outside world. And your attention, in a way, is, uh, is directed inwardly to, your, to some kind of virtual reality that you're experiencing. And why that happens is extremely interesting and mysterious, but there are some clues now, and we can talk about that. Um, so you'll go into a REM sleep stage, and then that'll be followed by another um, deep sleep and then slow wave sleep stage, uh, sometimes with uh, lower amplitude slow waves. They get smaller as the night progresses, almost as if something is being satisfied, like we don't need them to be so big anymore. And then 90 minutes later, another REM sleep stage. And that'll keep happening towards, and then towards the morning, you have much less deep sleep, much less slow wave sleep. The waves, if they happen, are much smaller. And then you mostly have REM sleep or, or dream sleep. And you know, then you wake up, right? So, and you can be waking up at some times throughout the night, but it's typically this alternation that's really characteristic of at least um, alien sleep. Uh, between these two different stages, at least two stages of sleep, deep sleep or non-REM sleep and then REM sleep, which has also been called paradoxical sleep because it's paradoxical that the brain looks like it's awake, but you're actually asleep. Okay. And is that, it looks like you're asleep. So when you're saying it looks like you're asleep, does it also feel, do you, do, do you feel like you're in a bit of a twilight state? Is that, or, or you don't, or, or it's not something that you are aware of? No, so I mean, you're you feel like you're in a twilight state at the very early stages of a of a, of non REM sleep, 
Mm. Right. So as you as you go towards deep sleep, you have what's called stage one sleep, and there you can be um, can be brought back to reality. But you typically have um, you know some kind of awareness that can still be there of uh, of the real world. But but REM sleep, you know, rapid eye movement sleep, as it's called, is something completely different. Uh, there, it's really a, a virtual reality. It has nothing to do with uh, with the actual real world on the outside. <laughs> Is deep sleep when we're when our brains are really getting the 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 benefit of that stage where it, where it's being cleansed and the toxins? Yeah, are... so I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked that question because <laughs> there's something about that. This has been a, a big uh, problem in the field in a way um, that first of all, sleep is not just one thing; it's no. many different things. And um, and deep sleep, it just sounds good, doesn't it? Like deep sleep. I'm getting my deep sleep. Whereas REM sleep or dream sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, it sounds just a bit ridiculous. It's like, you know, well, you know, I had this virtual reality where I was naked talking to an audience or like, you know, wading through mud or like something didn't, that didn't seem to make much sense. So we tend to think that it's less important just because of the strange conscious content associated with it. It turns out that they're both just as important. Oh, okay. right? So if you deprive an animal of REM sleep, it has a REM sleep rebound. It needs to recover that REM sleep. If you deprive an animal of deep sleep, it has a deep sleep rebound. It needs to recover that loss of deep sleep. So both kinds of sleep are just as important um, for a good functioning, healthy brain. So deep sleep happens first though. Typically you first go into deep sleep. And as you uh, suggested, deep sleep is when those basic uh, cellular homeostatic processes happen. That's when the brain is concerned about maintaining the health of cells in the brain. That's when um, these connections between the brain cells are being optimized, they're being normalized in a way. That's when the rubbish is removed. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's, there's just debris that accumulates throughout the day. It actually has to be taken out like, like rubbish. Um, uh, during, and that typically happens during deep sleep, during slow wave sleep. During slow wave sleep, which is is when these one hertz oscillations happen is also typically when there's a lot of stress regulation and repair in the brain. And that's completely different than what seems to happen during REM sleep. REM sleep has been much more mysterious about why do we actually need to go into this kind of virtual reality every night. Um, and that, that's been kind of like a, a bit more of a debate, but there's more answers coming there. And it seems to be much more about circuit, circuit level regulation in the brain. Uh, maintaining the health of circuits or the balance of circuits as opposed to the balance of individual cells, if that makes any sense. Yeah, okay. And, and, and is what, there a difference between REM, REM sleep and this virtual reality and dreaming? It's been shown that if you wake somebody up at any time during sleep, even deep sleep, uh, they typically um, report some kind of dream. Okay. So it's not entirely true that Dreaming only happens during REM. It happens, you know, throughout sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, the the sleep, the, the dreaming that happens during REM is of a different quality. It's much more vivid, um, right. much more n- narrative based, um, much more emotional, as well. And that also begins to give us a clue about what REM sleep might be doing. And uh, there have been many papers now suggesting that that REM sleep is about emotional regulation. Right, so maintaining emotional balance, making sure that when you wake up in the morning, that you're responding to the world uh, in an emotionally balanced way, mm-hmm. that you have a capacity for surprise, for example, 
and, and are not entirely habit-driven, but, but basically pay attention to the world in, a, in an optimal way. And would you suggest, I, I have a um, sleep tracking ring called an aura ring. So I, I do measure my sleep regularly, well, daily, but I, I take breaks without, without it. So I like to check in every, every, you know, wear it for a week or two every month. And so it's interesting because it's, it gives me my data in an app and looking at my sleep stages throughout the night, very, you know, I'm looking at it now in, in, in line with what you were speaking about and, you know, definitely going into that deep sleep stages early and, and then up into the REM later. Um, for people who might not even be aware of any of this or don't track it, is there a benefit in that? Or how would you suggest that people use this knowledge? Yes, these are interesting devices. This is more and more people have these, these kind of devices now to track their sleep, to track their, their behavior during the day, their walking. I think whether it benefits you kind of um, depends on what kind of person you are. If you yeah. are an anxious, an anxious personality, it might not help. Because yeah. you'll really be be worried about are you getting the kind of sleep you need? Are you getting enough? Oh no, mm. I didn't have enough deep sleep last night. And then there'll be anxiety provoking, right? It's mm. not going to do you going to do you any good. You'll just be worried about how much sleep you're getting, and you should probably better just leave it alone. That's right. Others who might want to be sure that they you know are maybe you know less anxiety driven and just want to be sure that they're going to sleep at the right time and are following a regular rhythm every day. That that's so important for sleep it might help right mm. and then you would just need to have some sleep knowledge as well in terms of how much sleep is expected for your age bracket yes so for example um uh, children infants are not going to be wearing these devices but you know <laughs> but um but children in general um need much more sleep than adults do right so uh, up to being teenagers they, they need eight hours ten hours of sleep um Whereas, you know, your average adult can get by with eight hours, seven hours. And then by the time you're hitting my age, 50, you know, five hours is probably fine. Mm. Uh, so then if I'm not aware of that and I'm thinking, um, oh, I need to have eight hours of sleep and I'm mm. not getting it every night, I'm only getting five hours and that's anxiety driving my anxiety. That's not a good thing. Yeah. And so there's some knowledge that's necessary here about what actually uh, is expected for your age bracket. Absolutely. And, and on that topic of I was uh, reading some interesting research over the weekend about the anxiety and stress and, and concern in teenagers and therefore impacting sleep. Do you have any recommendation around, you know, I think that there's a, a big generation there that's spending a lot of time connected to devices and gaming and all sorts of things, lots of energy drinks and caffeine-related products. Mm. So I know the answers sound simple, don't do it, but for for parents perhaps of, of teenagers, what, what do you recommend is, is important for them during this period? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I mean, I have teenage kids. Um, you know, I have the same concerns, obviously. Uh, first, there's just the, the very kind of obvious ones, which are relating to, to blue screens, mm. right? That, and people are beginning to be knowledgeable about this, that, that blue light is not a good color to promote sleep. Yeah. Um, that, that's just off the bat and devices now have changes that you can apply to, to make them more oranges or yellow. Yes. And, and that's because there are blue light receptors in our brain that actually wake us up. So that already is the first thing that, you know, like what kind of device you're using and what kind of lights you're looking at is very important. But I think more 
relevant is is just the kind of behaviorisms that are associated with working on screens mm -hmm. and um and how they're just in a way very uh habit forming and uh and that's also kind of not conducive to to unwinding and being a, you know having a good night's sleep you know if you're just kind of uh, on a never-ending cycle of a of some kind of a media or some kind of game for example mm -hmm. um there's no closure your brain is still going to be active you know when it's time to go to sleep and you really need that time a half hour at least you know that's why i tell at least my my 16 year old son mm -hmm. uh, to wind down at the night before going to before going to bed uh, it's not something that's going to go away no. Uh, but I think uh, but the systems will become more intelligent and adapt to hopefully our better understanding of, of sleep. Let's hope. And, yeah. you know, just, just embracing, embracing the outdoors and, um, you know, as parents, I think that we are responsible for encouraging more of the traditional behaviour, you know, around spending time outside and, um, you know, less, less screen time is, is a good place to start. Exactly. And if you think about one of the likely functions of, a, of at least REM sleep, uh, which is dream sleep, what I call dream sleep, if, if one of those functions is to maintain a emotional regulation and a, and a capacity to, to be surprised at the world and respond you know, with appropriate emotions to the outside world, to respond with awe at nature, for example, uh, all mm -hmm. those kind of things, um, that's not things that are necessarily... Um, produced by habit forming behavior on a computer. Yeah. Um, so it could be that, that, you know, those kind of behaviors that we have online don't really call for, you know, quality sleep. They call for, you know, consolidation of habits rather than, um, than maintaining kind of like, you know, a uh, well-regulated brain to, to respond, uh, um, you know, in the right way to, to the real world. Mm, definitely. And now it's time for a quick break. Are you having trouble falling asleep? Calm your busy mind and drift off with the Goodnight Co. Deep Sleep Drops. Using a combination of naturally derived ingredients, our deep sleep drops have been scientifically formulated to help you naturally achieve a deep, restful sleep. Just eight drops under the tongue before bed can help you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. We're offering you 20% off your next purchase of our deep sleep drops with the discount code podcast20. Try them today. Available at thegoodnightco.com.au. Bruno, what would you suggest for people? I'd uh, love to know your thoughts about some of the best foods that you might encourage people to be looking at when they're thinking about good brain health. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, one would be tempted to um, to say something like the Mediterranean diet, you know, <laughs> uh, or like a, a, a various other fad diets. Um, and I'm sure the Mediterranean diet is excellent. Um, but I think I'll try to go a bit deeper in answering that question. For starters, it's not a bad thing for adults to be hungry. Mm, good point. And um, there is a, a tendency to just... Uh, be satiated when you when we when we eat to like eat to, to to completely satisfy our hunger and you know for children for infants for kids that's fine i think they they need to really get those nutrients they're still growing but i think for adults 
there's something to be said to, to just be 75% satisfied and just to, just to always be a little bit hungry. And there's actually some good research behind this in terms of uh, there being a connection between the hunger pathways in your brain and a, a direct link with, uh, with your, the way that we pay attention and, and, uh, and the way that we maintain brain health, that um, there's a close link basically between the gut and the brain. And the way we evolved was actually to, to always be a little bit hungry yeah. and to be, alert, to be alert as a consequence. And it's quite unusual at this point in our evolution to, to really have the capacity for complete uh, you know, satisfaction <laughs> with yeah. regards to sugars and fats. So that's my first, um, at least personal realization that it's, it's probably good to just stay hungry as an adult. Yeah, uh, I, love, I, I love that I, point. Yeah, I, I don't need that many calories, you know, my body is where it needs to be. Yeah. Uh, I think another important thing is that we can try many different foods and we can go on Mediterranean diets or keto diets or whatnot. But you have a microbiome, you have a, a, a flora in your gut that's pretty constant. And that defines in a way who you are and has uh, that's formed, you know, many years ago and that has a certain trajectory to it. And that's really hard to change, actually. Mm. unless you go on antibiotics or something. And, uh, and that's probably defining, you know, your, your kind of like nutrition health in a way much more than, than any kind of rapid change to another kind of diet. Um, you know, what, what exactly is your gut flora? Where does it come from? Often it comes, in a, it comes because of your family and you know, who you share your environment with. Mm. Um, it's very influenced by sugars. So, you know, I think I would go easy on, on the sugars. Um, there's a lot of bad bacteria that just thrive on a, on a sugary environment. And I think those are kind of the long-term rules to go by more than I think any quick change to, you know, to a very specific kind of diet, or I think I'll eat some fish this week or, or some more nuts and olive oil. Um, it's just a, a level of constancy of, of like ma maintaining a similar kind of diet over the years that, that maintains your gut flora and doesn't necessarily, um, drive it in various different directions wildly to, to really influence them, you know, your brand in a way. Because if you think about it, some um, neurotransmitters like serotonin uh, are largely produced in the gut. Mm, right? yeah. So this is your, your mood, mood neurotransmitter. Most of it, I think, if I'm not mistaken, comes from, from your gut and actually influences your brain. Mm. And that's going to be largely depending on, on your microbiome, interestingly enough. And there's a lot of research being done there. So how do you maintain a good microbiome? How do you maintain a good population of bacteria in your gut that use whatever food they can to, to keep on persisting? That's, that's a huge area of research right now because it has a, an enormous impact on brain health. It's called the, the gut-brain axis. Huge amount of research. And for anyone who's listening and wants some more information, if you haven't heard about this this type of um, research, we'll put some some information on this and some resources over in our closed Facebook community. And feel free to check out, you know, to get some more information about how this might help you over in the, the closed Facebook community. I think that's, you know, such a great point, Bruno. And, and there is so much information now, isn't there? And it's, I guess, when you think about the you know, when people often say, listen to your gut, because there is that real brain feeling. If you, if you really can connect into your gut and that gut feeling, um, you, you can understand that there is that complete connection. Yeah, there's actually a direct connection between your gut and your brain. So, yeah. um, so definitely the little critters that live in there, bacteria, 
have an enormous impact on our, on our brain health. And is there anything that you do personally that you think is wonderful for, for your brain that we should know about? Uh, well, definitely try to get good sleep. Yeah. That's the first one. I mean, that's obvious from, you know, the subject of this, this podcast. I think I, I try to maintain a capacity for, for surprise at the world, you know, try not to be driven too much into habit behavior. Yeah. Um, I think that's important. Like, uh, and we often hear stories about, you know, cultures like, you know, again, Mediterranean cultures that seem to live very long and have healthy brains well into their 90s. And they often seem to be people who really like to socialize. Yeah. So they like to get together and they play dominoes and the plaza every evening. And, the, you know, <clears throat> the women have all their friends and get together and <laughs> the men get together and drink coffee. And uh, somehow that seems to be important. You know, that level of uh, socialization, uh, that level of uh, predictability also and, and happiness. Yeah. Um, how to find that, again, is difficult. It's like, you know, getting rid of anxiety is also difficult. Mm. But it's, I think it's crucial to try to, to, try to find that level of, uh, of what makes you happy and, uh, and make sure that you make that really a part of your everyday life. Absolutely. And, and the brain will follow, right? And then you'll sleep well as well. And uh, it's hard to recommend that for people. Everybody's going to have a different path to that. And, and do you, you know, you sort of mentioned it there in that Mediterranean culture, but uh, are there things like, you know, lots of people talk about crosswords and um, Sudoku and, you know, learning a language mm. or, or those types of activities. Are they good for brain health? They are. I think uh, learning new skills um, definitely has a connection to the kind of quality sleep we get and quality sleep is connected to brain health. So. Um, we consolidate our, our new skill learning behavior during sleep. Yeah. So I think, I think when you learn a new skill, that, that is definitely good for the brain. So that would be a language or building something or, or even just developing relationships is also mm -hmm. a skill in a way. Yeah. These are all, it's kind of different ways of, to put it in a different way, it's different ways of predicting the world, right? So when mm -hmm. you're learning a skill, you're learning a new way of predicting how your actions have consequences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in a way, that's, that's what a brain wants to do, right? So a brain is a, a prediction machine. It, it's there encased in our skull for a very specific reason. It's to predict the world. That's what it wants to do. And it has to maintain a balance between making very good predictions, like when we've learned to ride a bicycle or drive a car or speak a language or, you know, play basketball. And then also be surprised when some predictions are not borne out, when suddenly something happens that's that's surprising or funny or scary. You have to respond in a, in a normal way, right? That you might get angry, you might get um, sad, but those are all good things. There's, there's a reason that we have those emotions. And mm -hmm. the reason is so that we can basically respond to something that's unexpected and learn from it, right? That's what a brain wants to do. And when we learn from it, we can make better predictions in the future. So it's really achieving that balance between, between predictions and surprise, I think we need to basically create situations that allow us to do that yeah right so if you have a very routine environment where you're never going to be surprised at anything that's not a good thing if yeah. your environment is always surprising and distressing that's not a good thing either again yeah. <laughs> it's back to that 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 old word of uh, homeostasis of balance looking mm. for balance um and some people try to find that with meditation um some people try to find that with exercise, 
but they're all different kinds of ways of, of getting, of, of looking for control in a way, if you want to think about it, of how can I get a good level of control of the world? And when you're not in control, you get depressed, right? That's where, mm. to some extent, that's how depression happens. It's people who are feeling that they've lost control. Yeah. Um, so I think looking for ways of achieving balance is really, is really crucial. Mm, I love that because, you know, often I certainly know that that's what I'm always striving for is, is balance. And often people say, oh, it's really hard to be balanced, but you can strive for it. So as long as you're not disappointing yourself, as you say, and falling into that trap of, you know, um, too higher expectation and causing maybe some of that depression or anxiety, then it's just that striving for that great balance. Exactly. And in a way that's, that's what the brain does during sleep, right? The brain does it for you. Yeah. It's looking for, it's looking for balance during slow wave sleep, you know, removing the debris, um, normalizing the strength of synapses. Um, it's looking for balance during REM sleep. Uh, it's trying to do it for you, but sometimes it just doesn't achieve it. And that's when we have a, a lot of sleep disorders and mm. that are typically associated with every single um, cognitive disorder, whether it's schizophrenia, ADHD, um, they, they all have sleep uh, comorbidities, so to speak. You know, people who have these disorders also have sleep disorders. So there's a huge connection mm. between any kind of human cognitive disorder and sleep problems. Um, and it's hard to disentangle, right? It's a chicken or the egg situation. Did the sleep problems cause mm. the, the cognitive disorders or did the cognitive disorders cause the sleep problems? And that's really hard to study in a human because you can't manipulate human brains. Yeah, we can manipulate uh, fly brains. And mm -hmm. that's why I study, I study flies, because we can find <laughs> out the, the direction of the causality. Yeah. Not that flies have schizophrenia, but they also have, uh, <laughs> you know, brains that don't work as well if, if, you, if you play with them in some way. Right. Wow. It's all very fascinating, Bruno. And, you know, I could talk to you for hours. I find it all so interesting and um, certainly have learnt lots of really interesting things in this conversation. So if people are looking to find out more about you and um, the Queensland Brain Institute, which is such a fantastic organisation, where can they find out? Are you, you're on LinkedIn I, I believe I have a LinkedIn account. I have uh -huh. a, a Facebook page. I, I'm not uh. extremely a media. I, I don't really do much of the social media. Yeah. Um, but I do have a, a web page on the QBI website, a faculty page, so to speak. Great. And then I have a, a lab web page as well, where, you know, we explain a bit the kind of things we do, the kind of research we do, not just on sleep, but also on attention and, and general anesthesia. Um, so that's, that's there online, easy to find. My name is fairly unique, Bruno Van Swinderen. There's just only one in Australia. Wow. <laughs> so you'll find me right away. <laughs> well, we'll be sure to, um, put, to put all of that information in the show notes for anybody who's looking so, for some more information. Um, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to help break down sleep and brain health. And I hope well, that it um, leaves some of our listeners with a, a bit more food for thought around why it is so important. Thank you. Thanks, Bruno. Thank you for listening to The Good Night Show. If you're keen to learn more about our guests or any of the topics we've spoken about today, hop on over to The Good Night Co. closed Facebook community group or check us out at thegoodnightco.com.au. And if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast provider by searching The Goodnight Show. And if you love what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us a glowing review. 
Thanks, everyone.